Consider these two facts about the U.S. economy. Millions of Americans work in low-wage jobs that don't offer learning opportunities to advance on to more skilled roles. And millions of jobs remain unfilled across the country because employers can't find people with the right skills. I'm Greg Thomas from Workday. Today on the Workday podcast, we'll hear how upskilling might just be the best way to tackle this dilemma. I'm joined by Jamie Fall, director of Upskill America at the Aspen Institute. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here. We're glad you're here. So before we get in too deep, how did you come to, to this field? How did you become a person at the Upskill Institute? Well, so uh, it goes way back to uh, my junior year in high school, actually. So. Um, I, uh, I'll try to make a long story as short as I possibly can, but uh, I was needing a job and needed some money. And the only job that I knew of in the tiny little town in the middle of Kansas where I grew up, I heard that the radio station needed a janitor. So I went, talked to them, um, had the good sense to put on a tie even for a janitor position. They hired me and that was on a Veterans Day. By Thanksgiving, a lot of the staff wanted to take off and be gone, so they started giving me, over that three-week period, like more and more responsibilities. You know, sit here, push this button at this time, and don't don't touch anything else. By uh, by Christmas time, more people wanted to be away, and after uh, New Year's, uh, next thing I knew, I had a full-time job there at the radio station, even through high school, uh, my last couple of years. And as I thought about going off to college then, after graduating from high school, they told me if I would stick around and go to the community college, college for a couple of years, they would pay for everything for me. So uh, for that for that two years, so I did, had two years of free college, it was great for me, a very good community college. Um, I had a chance to mature a little bit, you know, we'll just leave it at that. And um, uh, so that was all very good for me. So I was kind of one of the original upskilling recipients where an employer uh, saw potential in someone, was willing to invest in uh, my education, and, and it was good for both of us. It helped me, I, I grew up had very few resources. I couldn't have afforded four years of, of uh, college. Um, and uh, it was good for them because they kept me around. Uh, I always showed up on time, did the things that they asked me to do. And so it, it was great. And that's uh, really, now I look, you know, many, many years later and uh, trying to help a lot more people hopefully have opportunities like that. So. That's a fantastic backstory for how you got to where you are. And you know how to do radio. So you're, <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're prepared. I wouldn't say I today. knew how to do it, <laughs> but I worked at it. <laughs> um, that is wonderful. Um, so let's maybe start with a really simple question. What, when we say the word upskilling, what do we mean by that? Well, uh, you know, all kinds of valid definitions for it, but we really think of any sort of education, training, and development that leads to uh, uh, preparing someone for what's next in their career. So pretty simple. So, um, but probably not simple to get to. Uh, so this might seem like an odd time to be talking about this as, a, as, a, as an issue. You know, in, in the U.S. in August, the latest U.S. unemployment figures yeah, 3.9%. Right? Right. The economy is, is humming along. Yeah. So things are kind of great. Why is this important now? It depends on how you define great, actually, right? So great for whom? Mm. And so you have a lot of people who are in entry-level, frontline jobs who really have no opportunities for advancement. They're also probably in danger of, uh, at some point in the very near future, losing their job to automation and other things. And you also have employers that can't find workers that they need. It, with a 3.9 unemployment rate, uh, lots of retail, uh, fast food, uh, 
places really are having a tremendous difficulty finding people with uh, soft skills and other skills that they need. And, um, and employers are having trouble keeping people, right? As the millennials come of age and are now more and more in the workforce, they show that they're leaving about every two years from the jobs that they have. So jobs that used to have high turnover, it's been being accelerated now. So uh, yes, things are really good. I, I'm thrilled that we have a 3.9 percent unemployment rate, but still some real problem areas in, in the workplace. And I like the way you, you put that, you know, good for whom, right? Because I, I think that might be the biggest challenge that, that we're facing in the economy is how do you make sure that the tide is, is bringing up all the boats? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Somebody with skills, uh, great education, uh, you know, they're with an in-demand job, they're probably doing very well right now. These are, you know, uh, great, great times, considering what we had ten years ago. Mm-hmm. So, how did Upskill America, as an organization, come about? So, it was uh, around 2014, uh, maybe even late 2013, that uh, the the recovery was kicking in gear. A lot of people were feeling like things were better, but yet there was a really large swath of America where things weren't better. Uh, wages weren't going up. Uh, people fe- were feeling trapped in their jobs. A lot of people even had lost homes uh, during the uh, economic collapse. And um, there was just real concern about there needed to be more being done for workers. And there's recognition that there were companies that were doing great things. For example, Boeing spills, spends about a billion dollars a year on the wow. education, training, and development of their workers. This is you know, embedded in their culture. They really get this. There are other good companies I could mention that do a great job of this. But yet there were a lot of companies that weren't really investing much of anything. Uh, in their workers, especially after the economic downturn, a lot of companies, you know, cut their training budgets and other things. So uh, it uh, came about because of this understanding that we really needed to bring employers together, see what we could do to help this group of workers who weren't uh, reaping the benefits of the economic recovery. Mm. So, so when you look across the economy, you look across corporate America, what's the state of, of, of these types of programs to to, to add those skills and to, and to help people move along to that next path, that next place in their career? Uh, so I guess I would break it down, Greg, in, a, in maybe three different uh, buckets. You have a group of employers, back to the Boeings of the world, uh, who invest a lot of money in this. They really get this as part of the company culture, and they're doing great things and are really committed to making sure uh, that their workers have the skills that they need. So then you have another set of employers who do some things and you know invest some money, but maybe they're not doing uh, really kind of a complete package. Let me just give you one specific example that will probably ring true with your listeners. They may be investing in um, education and training, or they may have a tuition reimbursement program, but they have a two or three percent take-up rate, and a lot of people really can't take advantage of those uh, programs. And then, uh, you know, on top of that, maybe people complete a program, but the company's not even tracking who completes the program. So somebody that puts in all this time and effort, they're not even in line for a promotion. And then a, a, a third bucket of employers that I would say is they still see education, training, and development as an expense that has to be controlled, and they're really not doing a great, uh, great amount in the area at all. When you look at the types of programs that are out there, um, how do those break across different buckets? Does, does everybody kind of do the same thing? Are there best practices? You know, what what are the ways in which people are putting in place as programs to, yeah. to, to, to bring those skills? Well, we tried to define it in uh, 
bit of a continuum, if you will, and there, are, there aren't hard lines between them, but there are companies that do things around pre-employment training, so people in their community can benefit from some basic skills, education and training, and be prepared then for probably a first job. And then there's also, there are companies that invest in high school completion programs or equivalency programs. And then there are companies that have apprenticeship programs, companies that do uh, incumbent worker training or skill training for their existing workers, all the way up to college degree programs where an employer is really investing and will pay for a college degree for their employees. If you're an employer, how do you decide out of that broad range of possible programs, what's best for you and for your workforce? So, you know, the starting point is always pain, right? Where is your pain as a company? Where do you have high turnover? Where are you having difficulty filling or finding people with the skills that they need? And then really looking at what are possibly some of the solutions around that and uh, really uh, digging into um, what's hurting your company and what's holding you back from growth. I think that's the place that uh, most employers start and certainly where I would recommend at least kind of an initial review. And you mentioned in your own background that bridge into community college you had. What's the, what's the role, if any, of, of educational institutions in filling out this upskilling picture? It's a very important role, but it's not a perfect role either. So let me talk about both of those. So it's really important that employers have education providers that they can partner with through contract or through tuition programs to, uh, to uh, do education and training either on-site or at the college and have those partnerships where they know that the people who complete the programs, get the certificate or they graduate, are going to have the skills that really fit in. I think the most uh, high-profile example would be Starbucks and Arizona State University. That's probably one that most listeners would be familiar with. So there are some great examples like that that I can talk about where employers have those partnerships. Um, but they're not perfect, and that's the second point I want to make, is that uh, a lot of times colleges are really tied to a seat time uh, model that doesn't really work well with employers. A lot of colleges also, it takes two years to get curriculum approved. So, so seat time meaning people need to, to be in the classroom. Right. You got to be in the classroom, and no matter how much you already know, You've got to complete this course, and it's going to take you yeah. close to six the months to do it. The notion of credit. You right. have to have this credit many credit hours. hours Absolutely. To... Thank you, Greg. Yes. That's really um, a model that companies, or colleges, I'm sorry, are used to, what they stick with. And that's really not the best working model when you have an employer that thinks they need a skill, they need to deliver tomorrow, and they don't have two years to wait for an updated curriculum. And they have a day job, and right. maybe they have right. kids at home, oh, or elderly goodness. parents to take care of. And yeah, absolutely. That's an area that's, that's a tremendous need. I wish more employers understood what happens when people aren't in the workplace and some of the barriers that their workers are up against. And you, you gave great examples, children, a car that isn't you know, dependable. There are all kinds of things that uh, you know, it really is such an incredible commitment for someone to say, no, I'm gonna use my evenings or my weekends and I'm gonna go back to school. And they just need uh, so much support and um, it's, it's just so hard for them and I, I just wish more employers got that. Probably more so for those frontline jobs. There's, right. there's there's a little bit less buffer there. Maybe a lot Absolutely. less buffer there in terms right. of, you know, how am I going to fix the car? How am I going to cover the emergency room visit? Whatever it might yeah. be. When employers want to work with uh, an educational institution, what's the what's the role of each of them to to maybe find or design a program that that works for for both sides? How how, do, how have you seen that? 
work out in practice? Well, it takes kind of give and take on both parts, right? The employer has to be more clear than they often are about the skills that they need. A lot of times employers say, well, just give me someone who shows up on time, but people who show up on time, it's like, well, no, I wasn't looking for that. I need something else. Is, so, that, is that hard for employers to get to that level of specificity shocking, around skills? Shockingly, it, it really is. I think it's fair to say that many employers think that they definitely hire on competencies, but when you talk to them about what they really need, you know, do you need a certificate? What, what validates to an employer the competency that they're looking for. They, they aren't really sure many times. So they're, it, it, it can get really fuzzy very quickly when you're talking to an employer about uh, what do you need to fill that position. And the example you gave, someone who shows up on time, that's a soft skill. Right. That's not right. even a technical competency. I, I know I don't know how to run this sheet metal press, but I know how to show up on time. And they probably need that level of specificity around what they need as well. Right, it's somewhat surprising to me that difficulty for employers to talk about soft skills, right, and, and what it really means to them. You know, uh, they all say that they need teamwork, but how does that actually look in the workplace, right? Do they need someone who is gonna show up on time so the worker before them can go home? Or is it in the, the interpersonal uh, relationships and their communications, the way that they treat other people with respect? Uh, you know, what do those soft skills even mean? On the educational front, and, or, or the, uh, the front of employers and educational institutions working together. Uh, so you mentioned employers need to be more specific around the skills they need. What else goes into that equation? They need to respond more quickly to what the employer needs. They need to be able to provide uh, training and curriculum that's a faster turnaround that needs to be updated. Um, I, you know, it's fantastic when a, when a college and an employer can reach an agreement where there's actually some training developed and provided in the workplace as opposed to people having to go to the school. Uh, what can be done online, right? Do, the, do people even, and sometimes you find workers don't even have Wi-Fi at home, right? So is there something that could be done at the workplace? Is there some sort of a common place that Wi-Fi can be provided? And uh, so there are many things that employers and, and colleges just need to sit down, work through all of the needs and try to identify um, the best uh, compromise and the best uh, solution that they can come up with together. Is there a scale that's required on the part of either an employer in a community or an educational institution in a community to make the investment worthwhile? Right, absolutely. And, and you hear that certainly more from the college side. An employer will say, well, I'm desperate you know, for this position, and then how many people do you want to hire? Well, we're going to hire four over the next two years. It's not productive for a college to create a program at that small of a scale. So it's always better when, uh, you can, when an employers can look at things almost from what, uh, what's called a sector strategy. So what other employers in the same field or that are looking for the same uh, occupation, um, how can they work together to create a larger program so it's more uh, workable for the college? Yeah, maybe there's a concentration of an industry in an area right, or something like right, that. Right, exactly. Um, so we've, we've talked a lot about why this is good for employers, mm -hmm. helps, or employees rather, it helps them get on to that next stage in their career. Why is this good for employers? 
Well, uh, that's really the great thing about this, is this isn't uh, one side wins and the other side loses. Uh, I think part of what it, we feel like has helped make us successful over the last four years of this is that it's a win-win for both. And, and specifically to your question, uh, there were a number of return on investment studies that uh, Lumina Foundation and Accenture did with employers that really showed that by investing in education benefit programs that it provided a positive rate of return. The other thing that was really interesting about two of those uh, studies was that the highest rate of return by far, by multiples, was when they invested in the frontline and entry-level workers. That the company really didn't receive a great rate of return when they took someone who had a bachelor's degree, for example, and, and sent them back for an MBA. But when they took somebody that worked in their call center and said they were going to invest in them, help them get a college education, then that was really a tremendous uh, rate of return for them. So that's point one. We can actually point to evidence now in every, every one of those case studies that was done, there was a positive rate of return for the employers. Also, you have things like uh, uh, just the nature of millennials these days. Uh, one thing that's consistent in every survey that you will see from millennials is that they are not going to stay with an employer unless that employer is investing in their education and development and there, were, there are opportunities for advancement. So that really gets to the heart of this turnover issue, right, in retention. So that's another thing that's very good for employers. They can often keep the employees that they need longer by investing in some of those important programs. Back in January, BlackRock, the uh, CEO wrote a letter to employers, or to investors, I'm sorry, uh, that went out to, uh, uh, to companies. And he said in that letter that unless they're doing a certain number of things that BlackRock was no longer going to be in interested in investing We're in We're not going to put money in you. Right. And one of the top things was development of their workers and uh, being good uh, stewards of the workers that they had. So there's really pressure coming from all sides. There's the retention, there's um, just finding qualified workers, and then um, you know what investors are looking for in return on investment. And you know also this this gets to the reputation of the company, right? There are new things that are out there, not that new, but even if you think about things like Glassdoor, that someone who's looking for where they want to apply for a job, what kind of employers do you want to work for? You can go in and you can see, are, is this employer that I'm thinking about applying for, do they even invest in their workers or do they just use up the workers and throw them away, if you will? So yeah. lots of reasons why this makes good business sense Absolutely. for the employer. Right. Um, so where does this all go from here? You know, when you look out, pick your time frame. Where, where do you think these initiatives are going or, or perhaps even need to go? Well, uh, what we really talk to employers about is more than just you need to create one program. It's They really need to be looking at how they create a learning culture within their company. That's where we think the real impact is going to be both you know, immediately and three to five years out if we pick that window. So uh, companies need to be thinking about how do we really um, create the programs that are going to help us meet the skill needs that we have to continue to uh, refresh skills when we need to, also to attract the workforce that we need. It's from bringing people in to make sure everyone's being tracked, to make sure managers, for example, are rewarded for developing the people underneath them. Many companies don't do that. So it's this holistic approach of the learning culture that uh, I, I really think more and more companies hopefully are getting, but certainly need to as we look again to that three to five year time frame as change can, seems to be continuing to accelerate, changes in technology and in the potential for like mass dislocation within the workforce. So for employers or employees who are interested in 
learning more about this topic or exploring these kinds of programs, what advice would you give them? Where should they start? Well, um, excuse the shameless self-promotion here, <laughs> uh, Greg, for just a moment, uh, and your listeners as well. But uh, we've tried to create multiple tools for employers to really help them through this process. Our website is upskillamerica.org, and we have created a playbook for employers on upskilling. And it's cleverly called the Upskilling Playbook for Employers. And they should uh, take a look at that because we talk about some of these reasons employers should be thinking about investing in their workers, some of the ways that they can. We also try to point out a number of different models for how employers are doing it, some of the programs that we feel are very successful right now, and then um, also some of the things that they can think about to make sure that they have the program that's best going to meet their needs um, as well. This year, what we've really been focused on are specific tools that will help employers with the individual steps that they need to take to be successful for uh, with this. Uh, one example I would give you is that uh, we've partnered with the Institute for Corporate Productivity to do a, a number of um, infographics, and one of them helps employers think about uh, the way that they move from a tuition reimbursement model to a tuition disbursement model. So, so many companies, as we talked about earlier, they have these tuition reimbursement models with incredibly low take-up rates, and that's not a model that's going to be workable, especially for frontline and entry-level workers going forward. So, we help they them. They might not be able to afford it. So right. Oh, absolutely. Right. That's the key. The, the employee might not be able to right. afford it. Right. Absolutely. If you have someone making close to a minimum wage job, perhaps without benefits, they may have more than one job. Uh, further education just isn't an option for them. So how does the employer think about making that transition to a tuition disbursement model so the employee can avoid the out-of-pocket upfront costs, yet the employer gains the same benefit? So we've been talking about upskilling the workforce with Jamie Fall of Upskill America. Thanks, Jamie, so much for coming in and talking with us on the Workday podcast. If you want to learn more, please do visit the website at upskillamerica.org. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. My pleasure. If you've enjoyed what you've heard here on the Workday podcast, please subscribe. And thanks again for listening.